take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. We are continuing our study of that as we get going today. I've been told there's a big football game this afternoon. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. It's happening a little bit, so let's just take a quick poll um, online. You can answer these questions in the comments here in the, in the service. Raise your hands. How many of you are rooting for the Chiefs this afternoon? How many, all right, good Chiefs fans, all right. How many of you are wrong and rooting for the Bucks this afternoon? How many of you are traitors to the Titans and rooting for Tom Brady? I see your hands, all right. And then how many of you are rooting for the commercials or don't care? All right, here we go. All right, there we go. All right, so big game, and you know it's uh, it's the it is the culmination for those guys that we sit around and watch of a years long or more decades long for Tom Brady, forty something years worth of work towards this moment, and so it's always worth celebrating those kind of achievements that have worked so hard. But one of the biggest issues that you have to have to be able to be successful is the ability to be coached and the ability to do whatever you're asked to do. And as we look at Philippians chapter 2, as we transition from a statement about who Jesus is and what Jesus did to how we ought to live and how we ought to handle life, that's exactly what Paul is kind of telling them. Hey, this is important stuff that you need to understand about Jesus because you need to put it to practice in your own life. What we're going to start today in chapter 2, verse 12, is actually started already at the beginning of this chapter in verse 1. Over the last two weeks, we've talked about the preamble, the the um, opening text for what this really is about. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about the fact that we need to live together in unity, that we need to live together in harmony, that we ought to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, that we ought to consider others better than ourselves. And then he gives the illustration of Jesus and says, here's who Jesus is. And so it's almost like he gives the teaching moment, an illustration, and then what we're going to read today is the application. It's the form that we're taught in seminary to do sermons with. You explain the text. You illustrate the text, you apply the text, explain the Bible, illustrate the story, and then apply it to our lives. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, this is the reality. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Don't forget who Jesus is. This is the teaching and illustration part. And then he's going to give us some very practical things to do going forward and remind us of what it is to live out our faith faithfully. Let's read it all together and we'll come by and break it down into three parts. Verse 12 of chapter 2 of the book of Philippians says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you like shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. 
So Paul is saying, listen, based on the fact of who Christ is, based on the fact that he gave up his position in heaven, that he came down to earth, that he was obedient to death, even death on the cross, because of that and because we serve the one who is going to win, the one that has already won, the conquering God, because we are on the winning side, then live your lives in a way that is similar to what Christ has done. And he says in the first part of this that he gives us kind of the... the overall statement which is be obedient therefore you have been when i was there he says you did what you were supposed to do you were good in following christ you were doing what god would have you to do and then in my absence i have heard so far for the most part now he's going to point out something that they need to hear but he says for the most part i hear you're trying to do what god would call you to do here's the reality just be obedient for those of us that are christians sometimes we get concerned about freedom, and there is freedom in Christ, and grace, and there is grace in Christ. But it doesn't mean that we are free and have grace to do whatever we want to. I mean, the reality is that if we have been changed, if we have been saved, if we have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, then our lives ought to reflect the reality of that salvation. And that there is a different way in which we should be living, not to earn salvation. We'll talk more about this in just a moment because of a particularly troublesome verse for some that comes in this. But because we have been saved. And so he says, basically, if it was okay for Jesus to be obedient to the Father to the point of death on the cross, it is not too much to ask you to do what you're supposed to do. Be obedient. Now, I just know that as adults especially, but I've also seen it in kids and preschoolers and teenagers, senior adults. I'm turned 45 this week. I I think that means I'm a middle-aged adult now. Who knows what that means? I deny that, okay? Young adults, young professionals, college-age kids, none of us like to be told, just obey. Right? Just do what I said. Just, just, just do it. None of us like to hear that. But the point Paul is making is this is for our good. And if Christ, Jesus Christ, was willing to be obedient even unto death on the cross, then whether I'm there or whether I'm not, just do what you're supposed to do. And then he tells them specifically how that is supposed to happen. He says that they are to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. The first thing he tells them is, this is how you are obedient. And the first thing he says is that you need to live out the salvation that you have. You need to live it out. Now, I want to talk about a couple of words in here, because particularly that phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, has caused lots of issues for lots of people in the world trying to figure out, are they saying that it is our job, our responsibility to work out our salvation, to make sure that it happens? And I will tell you flatly from the beginning, no, that's not what it means. What it is telling us there is that there is some part of this salvation process that we are currently in that we have a portion, a part of being and doing for the glory of God. Paul, when he talked about living out our faith, living out our salvation, living out our understanding of who Christ is, when he used the word salvation, he's not necessarily talking in the New Testament with that word about our initial saving moment with Christ. 
In fact, Paul almost never, when he's talking about that initial moment of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, just that moment, he's almost never uses the phrase salvation. Salvation involves a larger term, a bigger picture. Most of the time when he's talking about that initial moment in Christ, when Christ, we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and he washes our lives clean of sin and filth and we are made whole again, that initial moment he calls justification. Now we're about to use some big church words, all right? Are you, are you ready for him? Are you okay? Say, we're ready, Pastor. All right. 20% of you are ready. Here we go. So, and sometimes people like hear these words and they're church words. Some of you know exactly what they mean. Some of you are kind of, well, that kind of know. Justification is that initial moment of being cleansed completely from our sins, past, present, and future, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Here's what I want to tell you. When it comes to your position in Christ, and your future with Him, you are never less or more secure in that than that moment that you first accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, in, in Baptist life, we call that kind of once saved, always saved. It's a bigger picture than that. But the idea is, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because He does it, He saves you, He works it out, and in that moment, He establishes a covenant with you that He has washed away your sins, and they are forever gone. Past, present, and future. Now what Paul often talks about when he uses the word salvation is, we are already saved, we are not yet where we will be. None of us, when we were saved, were immediately transported into an eternal home with Christ. That did not happen for any of us in this room that have been saved, because we're all still here. We also, none of us, had every sin that we've ever committed magically where we will never commit them again. I don't know about you, but sin is still an issue in my life. Right? Now, I mean, don't say right to my life, to your life, right? It's still an issue in your life, right? It's an issue for all of us. And so we're in that process of it being wiped away. The power of sin in our lives is being wiped away. The penalty of sin has already been wiped away. The power of sin is being wiped away. And that middle part is called sanctification. It just means to be made holy. And at some point in the future, Jesus is coming again. Now, I hope it's soon and very soon. But at some point, Jesus is coming again. And at that moment, when the archangel comes and the heavenly armies descend, those of us that are still here will rise with them. Those of us that have passed on or those that have passed on beforehand will rise at the same time. We will all meet the Lord together in the air and that will be a moment of glorification when the presence of sin after Jesus has won the war is completely eradicated. And so when Paul is talking here, when he's saying, work out your salvation, he is talking about that middle part of the sanctification process where God is in the process of changing us into the people that he intends for us to be. And that is a lifelong process. Can I just tell you, if you're still here on earth, how many of you are still here on earth? Okay, good. Still 20% of you there. All right. If you're still here on earth, if you're still here, God is not done changing you into the person he's called you to be right and so he is if we were alerts earlier he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in fact 
Paul wants to remind us of that because he tells us there in verse 13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. God is the one doing it in the midst of that. But he says in the midst of all of that, in the midst of what is going on, he says that it is our job to work out our salvation. Now, part of the issue comes from the word there. The Greek word that is used here is not used very many places in Scripture, and there's not a good way to translate it into English. At least that's what the people that I read said. But the idea is not to toil and make it happen. The idea is to demonstrate what has already occurred. And that it is for us as believers to live our salvation To display our salvation. To demonstrate to the world, which we'll talk about in a moment with the word shine. To show the world that we are obedient to Christ and that we are to live it out. Now, here's another little thing. This is one of those things we've talked about before. That as southerners, we really need a southern version of the Bible. Because that is not an individual word. That is not you work out your salvation. That is y'all work out your salvation. And so the idea behind that is... Y'all live out your salvation in and among the people around you. As a church family, Philippians, demonstrate to the world what it looks like for Christians to live together in unity. Live it out. Remember, unity is behind all of this. That's what he says at the beginning of chapter 2. That unity in Christ is what is being called for. The example given is Jesus and the fact that he was humble and obedient and thought of others above himself. And then he says to us, now you live that out, thinking of others more than you think of yourself. And in case, in case we miss some of the importance of what's going on here, he says... That we are to work it out with fear and trembling. And the idea is that what we're talking about is a serious matter before God. It is not something to be laughing about or joking about or just thinking it is a side issue that we don't have to think about. It is something that we take seriously in reverence to our God. The Words use fear and trembling there are used throughout Scripture to give how our posture should be before a mighty God. And one of the things that Scripture reminds us again and again and again and again is that we should not handle lightly the things that are of God. We should not handle casually the things that are of God. We should not mock or laugh at or make fun of the things that are of God. And that we do, we are disobedient and we fail to recognize the severity of the issues that we're talking about. Now here's what I want to just remind you of. And we're going to see some more of this in just a moment. Particularly here, he is talking to the Philippian church about moving together for the glory of God in unity. And as he's talking about moving together in unity, he says that you live that out together. With fear and trembling, realizing that to do otherwise is to negate an understanding of the severity of the God that we serve. Now again, 
The verse after this reminds us this is not something we have to do on our own. This is not something we have to, to, to build up. This is not something that as a church we have to come together and give great speeches to encourage us to do this. That the power of God within us, if we will allow it to be the driving, motivating force, will be what will guide us in that direction. But the moment that our interest or our group's interest trumps that of God's interest or overwhelms the God's interest in our church and in our lives is the moment we begin to go down a path where we are not following the Lord in obedience of unity and purpose. On Wednesday nights, we are we literally started three or four weeks ago at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and we are walking through the entire Bible over the next year. Some of you have joined us online few of you have joined us in person. I'd love for any of you that would love to come to be a part of that on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. But a couple of weeks ago we did Abraham. And there is this, this amazing picture in the book of Abraham. When you just first read it, it feels and sounds really weird, all right? Because what it says is that Abraham and God were there and God put him in a deep sleep at one point. And there was this place where God had separated the animals. He had literally divided animals in half. Physically, and put them on opposite sides of what would become like a runway. And so there are goats and birds, and they're over there on the sides. And it says that God put Abraham into a deep sleep, and then God walked through the middle of the animals. When you read that, you're like, what in the world is going on there? When Hebrew culture, when you made a covenant with someone, one of the things that you often did is that you would divide animals on either side and then you would walk hand in hand or side by side with the person with whom you were making a covenant and you would walk down the aisle, if you will, of the animal carcasses on each side declaring that if either one of us breaks this covenant, we will become like the animals on our sides. That's a little more than signing your name to the bottom of the paper, right? It was a covenant agreement. The point of the Abraham story is God makes a covenant with Abraham, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. It's going to be awesome. This is going to be what's going to happen, Abraham. Then God, they get ready for the ceremony, and then God puts him into a deep sleep, and God walks through alone and says, I am the one who will keep this covenant. When God saves us, he walks through that alone. He says, I am the one that is going to will and to work in you, and it will come to pass. When we accept what he has offered to us in salvation, he does the work. All we do in the midst of that is follow what he calls us to do. And Paul says, God has given you the ability. God has shown you the model. Live it out. And then he goes to the way that you live it out. And it is not what you probably would think just normally would be the next step in the process. Verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. Among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. So he sets up this big deal, says it's a serious thing. Do it with fear and trembling. Live it out. And then he says, here's how you live it out. Quit complaining. Quit grumbling. 
And then he gives us a picture in there that we may not catch on initial reading. He says, so that you won't be crooked and perverted generation. In their day, in their time, that was code words for the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. So he's saying, don't be like Israel in the wilderness. Remember that story, right? God delivers them from Egypt. They get out into the wilderness. Right before they cross the Red Sea, they all go, great, we're all going to die out here. Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Can we just die in Egypt? And then they get across the Red Sea. God splits it. You remember that? They get over to the Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses goes up to the top. Moses has gone a little longer than they think he should be. They get upset about that. They start complaining about that. They go to Aaron and they say, hey, we need something. What are we going to do? So they build a golden calf and begin to worship it, hoping it'll bring them some news. And Moses comes down, he's mad, like, what are you doing? And they get upset about that, and they throw, you know, they do this terrible excuse that we threw all our gold in a fire and a golden calf jumped out, right? And then they leave there, and they get back on the right track, and they get out in the wilderness, and they're wandering around because they didn't do what God called them to, and Moses got upset, and they're mad at each other, and then they just begin to complain, complain, complain. So God gives them manna, Every day they wake up, free food out there. They don't have to do any labor for it. They just go gather it in every day, a new day of food provided for them in a wilderness for a million, two million people. And they continue to complain about that. Well, we had better food in Egypt when we were slaves. Why can't we go back to Egypt? We had meat in Egypt. And so God gives them meat. And God says, I'm going to give them meat till it's running out of their noses. And they complain that they have too much meat now. I'm glad that doesn't sound like us. Stop grumbling and complaining is the first step to unity that God has called us to. Now, here's what's interesting. A couple of things here. First of all, this is a direct kind of symbol here that the church is the new Israel. And you'll hear lots of discussion out there about the new Israel. There are even those out there, America's the new Israel. That is biblically inaccurate. The new Israel is not the old Israel. It's not America. It's not any geopolitical unit. The new Israel is the worldwide big C church. And what it says here is that we, if we're going to live our lives, we have to be better than the Israelites were who spent a lot of time grumbling and complaining. Now, here's what's interesting here, because there's a word here. It's not all, although some translations have all. And I was tempted to find a translation that said all. But it says, do everything. You know what everything means? Everything means everything. There is nothing that is discounted in everything. Do everything without grumbling And arguing. Well, pastor, we all just got different opinions. Paul's point is that if you're a following Jesus Christ and you are surrendered to him and as a church you're moving forward, he says our goal is to be of one mind. You know what one mind means? It means not a lot of differing opinions. So we have to ask ourselves if there are multiple opinions out there. Can I tell you something that's just honest and straight from God's word? If there are 15 opinions out there, four to them, 14 of them at least are not God's. Right? If we're to be of one mind, that means we got to find God's one mind and we got to go with that. That's what brings unity. And we do it without complaining or arguing. 
Particularly what's interesting here is when you look back at the, what was happening in their day and what's happening here, Paul mentions a couple of times already, and you may recognize he's already said something about whether I'm there, whether I'm not there, whether I, whether I get to come to you, whether I don't get to come to you, you need to do what God's called you to do in one mind and unity. Here's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think that Paul came and planted the church and Paul is a hard act to follow. Right? I mean, he's the greatest church planter that has ever lived in the history of the world. And whoever came after Paul, the church didn't think of as much as they liked Paul. And some of them are writing to Paul saying, hey, Paul, we got to get this fixed. Hey, Paul, can you fix this for us? Hey, Paul, can you tell this new God to do what we're supposed to do? And he says, whether I'm there or not, you do what God has called you to do. And you follow the Lord and the leadership God has put in place. In the Old Testament, you know what they mainly complained about? Was Moses' leadership. Moses, why did you bring us into the desert for us to die? Moses, why did you do this? Moses, why aren't you providing for us? Moses, why not? And God makes the point there that if you're complaining about Moses' leadership and I have established Moses as your leader, then you're complaining about me. And so what happens here is he says... I really, I, I do, as I've read more and more, I think what's happening here is Paul's in prison and they want him so badly to come back. They love Paul. Paul loves this church and they want him to come back, not just to come back and say hello, just to make sure he's okay. They're like, we, we miss you, Paul. And we miss your leadership. And he is like, God has ordained new leadership there. Whether I am there or I am not, be obedient and do what God has called you to do without grumbling or complaining. Live out unity among yourselves and go forward. And he says, when you do that, you will be a countercultural example to those that are around you. He says that you then, if you do that, if you will follow without grumbling or arguing or complaining, then you will see that you will be blameless and pure children of God in a crooked and perverted generation. And when that happens, you will shine like stars in the world. Notice he doesn't say, hey, your job is to shine like stars. He says your job is to live together in unity and harmony for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the purpose of holding fast to what you've called you to. And when you do that, you will shine like stars in the world around you. Paul is telling them that they are to follow the example of Christ. He'd already given them illustrations of that. You look to the rights of others. You look to the others and the way they are living and say, I would rather them get their way than me. I would rather them be fulfilled than me. You live your life thinking of others before yourselves. Because the issue comes when everyone goes with their own agendas and their own ideas and they bring them to the table and everybody is fighting for their own position or idea. In the midst of that, that means... That you're not truly following what God has called you to do. And then the last thing after he tells us to stop complaining and grumbling. He tells us to hold fast. To stand firm. Verse 16 says, holding firm to the word of life. Hold fast to what you know. Hold firm to this message of hope and goodness. Part of the idea is that if you're complaining and arguing and fighting with each other, it is not in the least bit attractive to people on the outside looking in. He said, but what we have is a word of life and of faith, a life of hope and joy. So hold fast to that. 
realizing that even if I don't get my way on earth, guess what? There is coming a day when God will return. And when God returns, we are going to live in eternity where we cannot even imagine the glory of what we will see and experience. And the momentary troubles we have here, the momentary disagreements we might have here, are nothing compared to the eternity we get ahead of us. So it's not worth holding on to for the moment if it means releasing it and being obedient in humility what God's called us to do. He says that when you do that, when you hold fast to what God has called us to do, when you hold firm to the word of life and you build your life on the reality of what God has done in and through us, then he says, not only would he rejoice, He tells them, that's what would make me happy. That's what would make me rejoice. Even more so than being freed from prison, Paul says, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. He's saying, then I can show evidence of what God has done through my life. But he tells them in verse 17, even if I am poured out as a drink offering. That basically means even if I die in this prison. Remember we talked that first week. Paul had aspirations to get to the ends of the earth. Paul had aspirations to take the gospel to all nations. Paul had all these aspirations. And he's sitting in a prison waiting. He says, even if I never get out of here and I die in this place. I am glad that I served you and I rejoice with you over what has happened. And then he says in verse 18, in the same way you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul basically is saying, listen, we will rejoice because of what God has already done in our midst. And whether I come back or I don't, you move forward in spreading the gospel under the leadership God has given you. And we will rejoice about what God does regardless of the outcome. Hold fast to what God has called you to do. Live out your life without grumbling or complaining out of the salvation that you have been given because that will make you shine like stars in a world that is desperately in need. And as you do that, as you live that out, hold firm to the word of life as we rejoice in what God is doing among us. That's our call as a church. That's our call as individuals to live our lives in that way. One of the things that's interesting about the way that light picture is given in this section of Scripture is that there's this twofold idea behind it. One is that living our lives that way will expose the darkness, it will show how dark the darkness is. That the contrast between a light coming on and a very dark room is evident. And that the lives of God's people in a church ought to be evident that it is different than the darkness of the world around it. But even more so than that, that light penetrates the darkness. And our goal as believers, our goal as a church is to penetrate the darkness of this world with the light of the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you've never accepted the free gift of grace of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. If you're watching online or you're here in this place, Lord, I just, I'm praying that the Lord will open your mind and heart to understanding that need. I'm praying that God will give us wisdom as a church about what it means to move forward with His one mind in unity for the glory of His name.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to know exactly the decision we need to make. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we live our lives in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.